0: Um, This morning, Ephesians chapter 3, you can go ahead and open up uh, to there if you'd like to do. Um, I want to tell you why this morning is a little bit uh, risky for me, um, as one who desperately loves you and wants to be uh, sharing with you things that you need to hear, not that I want to talk about. Um, One of the struggles of seminary students is as soon as they get out of seminary, often their sermons are not really that great. Uh, And it's not just because they're new at it and they're trying things out. The problem is this. If you've been in seminary for any length of time, what you're doing is you are rubbing shoulders with people who are asking questions of the text and looking at things in the text that only people in seminary ever think about or care about, really, in the whole world. And so you're rubbing shoulders with them and you're thinking about these nuanced things. And sometimes you get out of seminary and you're looking before a congregation that you, that you love dearly, and you start sharing things that, um, that don't really apply to them. Um, maybe they do on some you know, kind of deep level way out there, but it's not where they're living. And so what happens is, as a, uh, as a new pastor, sometimes it's, it's easy to just be talking about theological nuance things that aren't where, where people live, and aren't, aren't the questions that they're struggling with, and aren't where they're at with life. And to talk about the purpose of the church, there's the risk that I would be preaching in a way to what pastors really get excited about and think about and dissect and dialogue about and and chew on. And that it wouldn't hit where you're sitting here this morning, but... I said at the start of Ephesians, and I'll remind us of this often, one of the reasons that our bread and butter at NBC is to go through a book of the Bible is that it will hit on various kinds of things. So if I have a prejudice against talking about the purpose of the church, because I think that may not be where you're at, and it may not feel like touchy-feely right in my week, we're still going to hit the purpose of the church. Now, interestingly enough, I've already lost some of you. You're like, I don't mean, just, just get to it. Uh, one more thing. Bear with me. One more thing is this at the start of the year, I think for the last four years that we've been around in January, I have given some sort of um, revision cast of what we're doing as a church. And we've kept it really simple. I put the play button up in front of us and I've said worship community and share is not only the purposes that we're trying to do, but the process in which we're trying to accomplish it. I've shown you Starbucks cups, showing that Venti represents Sunday morning worship, and you'll always have the most amount of people there. And as you grow, you really become a grande uh, cup. Less amount of people are plugged into community and really a part of the body. And the smallest, which Starbucks confusingly calls tall, is uh, is those who are really expressing their gifts and, um, and sharing. And that kind of follows our pattern. I've given some sort of a message in January that, that, that ties into that. We are now in a passage of Scripture that's going to do that for me. We're not going to overlay our procedure on it, take a break from Ephesians to kind of share with you the vision of NBC. Rather, I want to pull out and say this isn't NBC's vision, how we accomplish it, although that's an important discussion, because there are nuanced differences between churches that are important. But I want to pull out and look at the big church. That's what what Paul is doing here. Now, um, I don't know if you... uh, if you are aware of this, some of you are going to sit in, in the room this morning and you'll be unaware of a conversation that's growing and brewing, mostly amongst Christian circles. And that is there is a growing, uh, seemingly a growing uh, disproportionate group of people who are becoming more and more uh, disgruntled with the church in America. Now, some of you um, may have college students as um, children or grandchildren or friends, or maybe you are a college student. And as a college pastor, I walked through many parents of college students saying, my child's reading this book. Do you know anything about this book? It sure seems to be taking them off the mainstream evangelical path that I grew up in Christ in. And it's really, really scary. And so I've talked to those parents and I've talked to a hundred at least college students who are pulling away from the church, who are disenfranchised by the church. If you haven't come across this conversation with a family member, with your own self, I'm sure there are people in this room who say, man, you're speaking my language. That's where I'm at right now. If you haven't come across this conversation yet, you will. That's my prediction. I think that you will come across someone who is a former churchgoer. They haven't abandoned Jesus. They've abandoned the church on some level. What's interesting is that the um, church is lame uh, demographic is actually this hot commodity amongst authors now. Isn't that weird? I mean, there's actually money to be made. And I'm not necessarily questioning every book writer who does this. But there's money to be made by going after this disenfranchised group about the local church. There really is. And there's several book titles I'm going to bring up today, uh, most of which I've read in, in part or in total, uh, because I wanted to be um, just conversing about what are some of the uh, things levied, uh, leveled against the church, and where are the, the things, and, and do, they, do they line up with Scripture, do they line up with myself? Here are some things, I'll just fire off some things that um, experientially I think are true, and uh, those who really get into studying these sorts of things uh, say are true. One is this, that spirituality is hot and religion is not, okay? Uh, they're not all going to rhyme, don't worry, that bugs me too. Uh, the second one is this, community is hip, but church is lame. Community is a great buzzword, and churches have kind of tapped into this. That's one of our primary words. We decided to grab it, because, because not because we thought it was hip, but because we thought it was biblical. But community is hip, but church is lame in some circles. Organized religion, at its worst, equals oppressive, irrelevant groups or organizations that are dead or dying and at the very uh, kind of you know minimalist it's just a waste of time organized religion is a waste of time you can get to God without organized religion Uh, a second another phrase kind of thrown around is outsiders those outside the church that that would be uh, like Jesus but not the church Um, another message being promoted is that insiders are told they can do just fine with God apart from church now, as you hear these different things, you ought to be wrangling with that and say, gosh, are those true statements? And experientially, do I seem to see that that's true with with people around me? Um, there are several books that are out there, um, several that I've read and, and hint at these kinds of themes. OK, here are some of them. Revolution, The Shack, uh, many things written by John Eldridge uh, are, are books on my bookshelf that kind of show this. Growing discontent with the current church system in America as it is now I'm using really broad terms by the way the current church in America. What does that mean? I mean we could spend really an entire sermon just defining what that means right because I hope I hope you understand this Um, I don't get I don't think there's any international students in here But an international student needs to be well-versed the second they land on American shores that Christianity. It does not equal America right and that David Hasselhoff on TV, he's not one of our pastors. He's not promoting, you know, the, the, the general consensus of what we're about as America. We need to kind of define what, what that even kind of looks like for, for someone. But I think we understand, uh, probably most of us in this room, no matter your church background, if you're a first-timer today, you would understand that that's a, a wide and varied statement. Uh, some other books, uh, like UnChristian and Life After Church, Quitting Church... And pagan Christianity explored this theme of why do outsiders not like the church? Why do those outside the church just just be turned off by it? And just put off by by discussions about it and what it stands for and all of that. Now a question for you. Are you bothered by the tone that I'm going already? Are you threatened by some of the things I've said so far? Or are you overjoyed that this discussion is, is going on? I mean, just kind of, there's been an emotional response in some of you because to attack the church is to attack what maybe you've grown up with. And there's an identity wrapped up there. Some of you may go, gosh, I don't know how to feel about some of this stuff. I certainly wouldn't want to read those books because it sounds, you know, uh, threatening or, or it, would, it would put me off. You don't need to answer this out loud or else, once again, we'd have uh, a really long church service. But what is your personal experience with the church now if we had time we could we could begin to unpack each one of your stories and just kind of hear the high points and hear some of the low points of your experience with church Um, i'm going to share just a snippet of my experience with the church see if you find any of your story tied into my story Now, I grew up in the church every other week, meaning one week I slept in on Sunday mornings. The other week I was faithfully at church. If you were sick, you went to church. If you were feeling healthy and great, you went to church. If a soccer game landed on a Sunday morning, guess what? You went to church. That's how it was on the off week for me. So I grew up in the church. Then I became a Christian and I grew up in faith in the church. Then a season of time passed and I grew frustrated with the church. Here's one of my frustrations. I would read the scriptures and I would see the information about the church. I would see depictions of what the church is called the bride of Christ. And I would see her portrayed in all her glory and what she can and should be. And I would look at my experience and say, why does that not measure up? Now, if it was in vogue back in the early 90s to chuck church completely, say that I get all of my spirituality by listening to a podcast, listening to worship music, finding community by sipping coffee and having spiritual conversations at Starbucks. If that was the trend, I may have been totally tempted to go that route. But that wasn't the trend back then. There is a trend moving toward that, by the way. If that was the trend, I may have been tempted. It wasn't the trend, so here's what I did. I didn't know what else to do but to roll my sleeves up. And as a member of that family, I knew that positionally and doctrinally. I'm a member of this family. I'm going to roll my sleeves up, and I'm going to get to work helping with the church dilemma that I was in the midst of. And trust me, I've had enough years at church... I might be able to top many of your stories when you want to talk about ugly things. And part of it, as a person who's been on staff now at a couple of churches, um, there's a whole new level of things that that I could probably top some of your stories. Sadly, you could probably top some of mine as well. And those outside this room could say, man, there's just a lot of negative things that I could say about it. Let me get to the scripture. Verses one to six, which we covered uh, over the last couple of weeks. In summary, are talking about the idea that the mystery of the gospel has been revealed and we're really going to keep on this revelation theme as we look at the church. And the title this morning is tipping my hand of what the application is, how to do church. It's going off of a website. Maybe you've heard of it called eHow. I think it's eHow.com. And basically people are looking for answers um, You know, I don't know how to do this. You type it in, and eHow will will tell you. What's fascinating, I went in, I didn't do a thorough search, so if you find this, you can email it to me, but... um I looked for a section on religion or spirituality kind of a thing. I just wanted to see what they had to say on how to do church. I just thought it would be an interesting exercise. What I did find was all kinds of things that are deeply personal. And um, in one short article, they're kind of telling you how to do it. You know, it's kind of like how to do this for dummies sort of a thing. But the the point is, the wide variety of things on eHow shows that people are just looking for answers. I don't know how to do this. Show me how to do it. It used to be that if you didn't know how to cook a turkey, what'd you do? You called grandma. You know, that's what you do. If you do, if you were estranged from your family, you went and got a cookbook or you, you found someone else, the web's amazing. You just type it in. You just Google it. You don't even have to go to eHow. You just type the question in and it'll spit back some answers for you. Now, the, the, you know, the, the problem with that is instead of grandma who knows how to cook a turkey, it might be, you know, some 12-year-old girl going, oh, I'm tell this person how to do it. You don't know what you're getting all the time. So you have gotta be careful. Just, just, uh, try it out before Thanksgiving, uh, morning. That's, that's my advice. Let's read, uh, our passage this morning, 7 to 13. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you which is for your glory. Now, there's lots here in this in this passage, and there is a lot in this passage I'm not going to even touch on at all. The whole first page of your bulletin notes are just some notes that I put down that I'm not going to preach on at all. So you can look at that. That may help guide some of your study. I would invite you to use. Community group time, personal study this time to explore some of the other themes that are in here. Um, Mainly why I'm not going to do this is because I've covered it elsewhere. We've covered it leading up to this and we're going to cover it again in the rest of chapter three or moving into chapter uh, four five or six. So so we're not going to rehash it. But but in here is Paul's ministry and identity in here also is what individual members of the church look like, namely Paul in this case. And collectively, what is the church supposed to look like? Uh, Couldn't we spend an entire morning on the unsearchable riches of Christ? I mean, that's just that's such a that's such a rich statement. It's just such a phrase that you say, and I want to linger on that. Let me give you homework on that. Go read Ephesians chapter one. This morning I read Ephesians chapter one and all the every time it says in him. And all the things that we have in Him. Just go read Ephesians chapter 1 and let that bolster you and be reminded of where to start studying about the unsearchable riches of God that are available to us in Christ Jesus. Another thing we're not going to cover is the mystery of God's plan that is revealed. It's talking about the gospel. Again, we've covered this elsewhere and I want to save some for your own personal study. So here's where we are going to go. We are going to go uh, to this primarily to this verse in, in verse 10. That God through the church is accomplishing this huge plan of His. Before we zero in on just that verse, I wrote in your uh, notes page two that this is is a gospel-centered, Christ-adoring and church-honoring passage of Scripture. Gospel-centered, Christ-adoring and church-honoring passage of Scripture. I think this little... Well, it's really this whole chapter, but this passage here uh, is instructive for us in that we are to be these kinds of people. We're to be ministers, servants, in the same way that, that, that Paul was. We're to be gospel-centered people, Christ-adoring people, church-honoring people. Not only that, we're to proclaim a message which is gospel-centered, Christ-adoring, and church-honoring. It's an, it's an encouraging passage to me as a Christian Because it reminds me that the gospel still has power to save people. Even if it seems out of date, even if it seems simplistic, even if it's thought foolish. In fact, the scriptures actually tell us this will sound to those who aren't enlightened to this foolishness. It'll be a stumbling block to certain kinds of religious people. And we can see in our day, it seems really simplistic And really outdated to just keep preaching the gospel and keep leaning on the gospel. But but we're going to get to that. It's also encouraging in that Christ is the means to the unsearchable riches that are found in God. He is the means to it. So so as I'm bombarded with thoughts and ideas that, that maybe there are other ways, other places to go seek this out. No, it's found in Christ and it brings me back to Christ. And it helps me move from information in this room about Christ to adoring Christ saying, God, as much as I adore my wife and love that you've provided me with a wife, you've provided me with so much more in you. And it it leads to worship. It really leads to worship as you see that Christ not only is the means to the unsearchable riches of God, but also He's the the realization, the focal point of God's plan all along. And that's why we talk about Him, sing about Him, and think about that so much. Finally, it's encouraging to the church because the church, as stated in this passage, is the means and method by which God is bringing to light his plan for humanity. He's showing off his wisdom through the church. Now, that ought to bolster the local church. Build up the local church. To say, even if you feel impotent at times, even if you feel small and frustrated with where things are at, this is the channel which God is going to be demonstrating his manifold wisdom. Already we've seen that God's purpose was to bring all principalities and powers under the sovereignty of Christ. That was chapter one. Remember, it wasn't just kings of the earth or, uh, or organizations in the earth or all the people of the earth, but all the rulers, even unseen rulers uh, under the authority of Christ. Under the sovereignty of Christ. Now we see that God is going to achieve this end. That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is going to be shown to all rulers and all authority. And that's a pretty big scope for the church to think about. So just how is the church doing? We're going to kind of focus on... This is just kind of a funny picture that I I, I missed the uh, thing on, but... Uh, In in looking at at what's wrong with the church, one thing wrong with the church is uh, sometimes they don't think through their front signs very well. And there's a ton of these. And it's just kind of comical to see uh, church bulletin bloopers. And uh, I just pray we never end up on there. Um, How is the church doing? Much of the the inspection uh, of the church and how it's doing is a really good thing. We do this with our car. We do this with our bodies. We have checkups, right? And we just say, hey, doc, look at my teeth. I mean, I see them, but you, you look at them. How am I doing with things? And we, and, we, and we look at this. Inspecting the church is a good thing. However, it can lead to introspection, where all we're ever doing is, is looking inward. Or it can lead to waywardness, where we, we build some wrong conclusions. I'm going to show you this in a second. And it, and it leads us away from a biblically revealed picture of what the... The church is to be. Ironically, I think there's two giant camps in America. One is that the mainstream media, if you listen to them, I I feel like sometimes they fear kind of an impending Christian theocracy, that Christians are taking over America. And there's 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 voices that are saying we want America back. And and there's fear that there's this kind of, you know, coming Christian theocracy coming in. At the exact same time, to read certain books and certain statisticians, you'd you'd think, uh, as an American Christian, that the church is in danger of going away, of becoming utterly extinct, because of some different factors that we see in statistics. Now, I I did some statistical study. I thought, I'm not going to bore you with this. You can go look at it yourself. However, what you can find is this. I like to read really dead people, which means they've been dead for hundreds of years. And what's interesting is how many times I could lift a passage right out of there, read it from the front here, and you'd think it was written this last week or in a book released this year. And then I'll blow your mind by saying this was written in the 1600s to people in England. I'm going to read you a quote today from the 1700s written to Americans in New England. And you see if it doesn't overlay onto the Bay Area 2011. Now, there's one primary question that those uh, who are who are writing books such as quitting church and everything must change. Kind of this idea of, you know, I kind of look at it as throwing the, the, the baby out with the bathwater. I've never done that. But um, I mean, at least that's embarrassing. You know, it's just it's, it's just I, but, but really that's what's happening with some of this. It, it's a it's a viewpoint for me of saying, man, we need to we need to chuck the entire thing because the thing's wrong. Here's one of the primary questions I feel like is being asked. And that is this. What are we doing wrong? OK, that is kind of that is kind of the driving question that I think a lot of these books and people who are on a search to to find out how to do church differently are asking. What are we doing wrong? I think two basic things are driving this. One is declining numbers. There's a basic assumption with declining numbers. That is, if we aren't growing, something is wrong. Now, in the one sense, you've heard me say, potentially, from the front here, that things that are alive grow. And so, am I praying for our church to grow? Absolutely. But the whole point of the Starbucks cup, stay with me here. The whole point of the Starbucks cups is this. Venti, grande, tall. Envision it. I keep it in my office as a reminder. Many times churches get into a siloed mentality where they're measuring one thing. They're measuring their venti cup. And by the way, Starbucks in March is coming out with a new size. Yes, we get more than 20 ounces. Have you seen the big old cups at 7-Eleven? I mean, Pretty soon it's going to be, you know... Whatever 100, you know, 100 is in Italian. It's just going to be massive. Um, Camelbacks filled with Starbucks coffee. I don't know. It's, it's the beer mug. I don't know. I mean, something, you know, it's just where do we stop? So we're going to have to work that into our, our vision of our church to add that, that, that 30-ouncer, I think it is. But anyway, sometimes churches get stuck in measuring one number, and that is how many people were at church. How many people are on our membership list? And the whole point of the Starbucks cups is this. We want to say, are, are numbers of people in worship telling? Absolutely, we measure that every single week. By the way, you're being counted, um, but you also count. Um, so, sorry. these are not in my notes. I should stick to my notes. Um, so we measure we measure those. However, some churches measure measure money and bodies and building programs. And you know what that leads to? That, that could be um, that could be Apple or, or Google right now, too. I mean, it could be the exact same thing. There, there, you don't need the Spirit of Christ in there. You don't need the Bible to even guide you in measuring those kind of things. I don't think those are bad metrics. However, those are lousy metrics to be seeing. Is, is the Spirit of God really moving and at work here? Here's one of the other numbers that we measure. We measure the number of people who are in worship and that are moving from worship over into community groups. How many new people joined a community group for the first time or for the first time in a long time this year at Neighborhood Bible Church? That's a telling number, isn't it? I don't just come to church and, and, and I'm part of things for for one one time a week. I'm, I'm moving into community. We also measure and this is a tough thing to measure. How do you measure some of this? How, how do you measure this? But but we also measure how how many people are moving from here. And this isn't always a one to one to one ratio. But how many people are really beginning to employ their gifts? Really beginning to serve in a way that God's designed them or pursuing those kinds of things. Those are great things to measure. So declining numbers and the basic assumption is if we aren't growing, something is wrong. Okay. here's the second. um, Here's the second uh, thing that I think is driving this question. What are we doing wrong? And that is that we have an image problem. Now, I'm going to sum up several books. I'm going to save you some time. Here's the Dave's Cliff Notes. The image problem that uh, that I think is, is, is dead on in some ways um, and, and maybe misguided in some ways. Again, the, the church in America is a giant topic, but here it is. The church is filled with anti-women, anti-gay, politically charged exclusivists who have completely forgotten their mission to love society and be loving to all like Jesus was instead of being hypocritical and judgmental. OK, I just saved you several books worth of time. But that in a, that in a nut, nutshell is what people are you know, are doing some research by going and asking people, hey, what's your perception of a born again Christian? What's your perception of a church down the street that is, you know, by, by this day, whatever, uh, whatever else it is. Now, here's the basic assumption uh, that that is kind of driving even research toward that. And that is this. We should be perceived well by outsiders. So I'm bringing this up. I feel this is a little bit technical, but stay with me. I'm bringing this up because there's one question being asked by a lot of people who are in the church's lame camp. And it's, what are we doing wrong? The, 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 the two things driving that, declining numbers and image problem. Now, it's not bad to look at those things, but I want you to, I want you to think with me. Are these assumptions foreign to the New Testament Revelation of God's Word and Jesus Christ's own ministry? Or are they prominent in this? Let me, let me build a case here, okay? Jesus, Matthew 7, 14. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. If image was everything, Jesus wouldn't have died. But He did die. He was killed, in fact, because of an image problem, basically. Um... And many of the same uh, accusations that are leveled at some modern uh, churches were leveled at Jesus. Uh, After a a pretty big start, Jesus' ministry is actually a study in church failure. He goes from masses to a small group to total desertion. Okay? Uh, That's pretty, you know, that's at that point, if you're a pastor, if I'm here by myself one Sunday, uh, we're we're closing up shop. We're going to change things up. I mean, really looking at Jesus' earthly ministry from that standpoint, with just those two markers, that's what what would kind of be painted for you. And then Jesus, in Revelation 3, commends Philadelphia, not the city on the East Coast, but the church uh, at that same uh, named city, uh, even though this church was facing opposition and had, quote-unquote, little power. okay, And and Jesus commends this church for, for some things. Now... There are some other places that I could go to, to help balance that out. But I wanted to throw those out to you. The success or vitality of a church does not ebb and flow with, with membership lists. And Jesus himself knew the fickle hearts of people. I mean, the idea of Jesus coming in at the triumphal entry and being cheered and, and celebrated. And the riot calling for his death. That span was measured in days. 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 And so Jesus knows the fickle hearts of people and what they're really seeking. I want to read for you. Look again at your translation, whatever Bible you're holding, uh, if you have a Bible, and look at verse 10 again in your translation. Verse 10 is where we're going to camp out, and I want to just fire off some other questions for you. The New Living Translation translates verse 10 this way. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom. His wisdom. In its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, as I read that verse, a few questions pop into my mind. I'm sure you have questions that pop into your mind as well. Here are a couple just to get you rolling, maybe. One is, how will God use the church? How will God really use the church to accomplish this this mighty display of His power? And as we look at the life of Jesus, isn't it just like God to use... A frail church sometimes to display his wisdom and its rich variety. How is the church supposed to display the rich variety of God's wisdom? These are great churches to think through as a church. Finally, what part do I play in all of this? If the church is made up of individual people, then when I mention the church, uh, we're not talking about this building. Right. Or a sign or chairs or assets or any of that kind of stuff. We're talking about people. So what part do I play in this? Now, back to this question on the screen. What are we doing wrong? I think that's a a decent starting point. But there are so many more questions. I'm going to give you seven questions. And this is how we're going to wrap up our time this morning. I'm going to have to go quick. But I'm going to give you seven questions that I wish I had thought of, but I didn't. I got these from a book called Why We Love the Church. And it's written by a last name of DeYoung and Cluck, And that's just fun to say. Um, but one's a pastor, one's a pew sitter. And together they kind of provide play-by-play and color commentary. And I'm only about halfway through it. But it's awesome in answering some of these, some of these um, charges leveled at the church. And how we're doing it all wrong kind of a thing. Uh, what are we doing wrong is not a bad one. But here are some other ones. Ready? Here we go. One is this. Look at that. There's verse 10. Uh, one is, <laughs> are we believing the gospel? Do you know how much time we've spent on the gospel in Ephesians 1 through 3? A lot. Some of you are going, okay, we get it. We keep talking about the gospel. Are we believing it? Others won't be convinced by Christianity if Christians aren't convinced by their own gospel. Here's the quote from the year 1740. George Whitefield says this, the reasons why congregations have been so dead. Is this a new phenomenon, by the way? The reasons that congregations have been so dead is because they have dead men preach to them. Wait, what? How did this get in here? Um, That's right. It's pointing at someone like me standing up and preaching to a congregation. I don't know if you've visited many churches before, but um, I don't get the opportunity to do it very often because on Sunday mornings I'm kind of tied up. But when I do, I love to be at other churches because I'm I'm both rewarded with an amazing richness of God's rich variety, especially if I'm worshiping in a, in a place outside of my own norm. But I also can be in a place and just say, wow, nothing that I'm hearing from the front right now even remotely resembles what I, what I read in the Gospels, and what Jesus taught. There are churches in America, and I pray often <laughs> that we don't ever become one of these, that have dead men preaching to dead congregations. And they're preaching the very things that Jesus came and absolutely blew out of the water and leveled His harshest critique for. And that is this this religious morality that leads to death and enslaves people and heaps burdens on people that they could never possibly bear. And he says, you don't do a finger to even lift them to help them bear that burden. Dead men preaching to dead congregations. Here's another question for us. Are we relying on the power of the gospel? The gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe. Does that sound familiar? It should. The power is the gospel of salvation for everyone or all who believe. That's Romans 1.16. And that gospel is what saves. That good news is what saves. And so proclaiming that is what we rely on. Do our churches resemble a reliance on explicitly proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection as the means to being saved? Or do we somehow find ourselves leaning on gimmicks or tricks or, or marketing or whatever else might be out there? And I don't think any of those things are in, in and of themselves bad. But if we ever start to lean on that as a means of salvation or a means of growing, I think we're on treacherous water. Sometimes churches fall into the trap of helping God with the message. You ever felt tempted to help God with the message? Someone says something and again, if people, people who wanted to argue with Christians really read the Bible, uh, they'd, they'd, they'd have a lot more ammunition. There are parts of Scripture where I go, Jesus, then why did you say that? His own disciples said, uh, Lord, let me pull you aside on this one. You're kind of making the religious leaders mad on that. There are whole things in Scriptures where I go, Lord, I don't know why you include this, but by faith I'm going I'm I'm to accept that you put hard passages in the Scripture for me to wrangle through. Sometimes they help God with the message so much that they weed God right out of the message completely. Churches in Europe, we've kind of watched this historically, haven't we? We've kind of seen the gradual liberalization and including more and more and loosening the reins more and more such that many, uh, many churches are void of some of the very things that Luther and others during the Reformation called out for and said, hey, where is this in our churches? One commentator put it this way. The reason many churches are weak and inefficient is because they do not understand what they have in Christ. And the cause of this often, once again, catch this, is spiritual leaders who are not good stewards of the mystery because they do not rightly divide the word of truth. That's 2 Timothy 2.15. They confuse their people concerning their spiritual position in Christ. And catch this. They rob their people of the spiritual wealth they have in Christ. Prophets in the Old Testament, God is leveling harsh critique for shepherds who are looking out for their own interests and not for the interests of their sheep. In the New Testament, harsher criticism will be leveled at spiritual leaders if we are robbing our people of the wealth Spiritual wealth that you have in Christ and not reminding you and clearly stating to you your already purchased position in Christ. Don't you love the song we just sang? We're singing the gospel. And that's why I love that song. I'm sitting back here and I'm and I'm just getting to adore Christ in this. I say, wow, I can't believe what I'm singing and I can't believe that it's fresh to me this morning. But, Lord, somehow you've made this fresh to me this morning. Wow, that's awesome. Freely, forever, I'm I'm in this position. Once again, I've I've got Ephesians 1 rolling around my mind too, by the way. But that's what we've been driving home for three chapters now, is your position and your wealth in Christ. Number, Number three is this, are we getting the gospel out? Do you see a common word here, by the way? Are we getting the gospel out? Churches must be going out to winsomely and urgently plead with people to consider Jesus Christ. Many people who think they've rejected Christianity aren't rejecting the the true Christianity. They're rejecting church in America. Frankly, I would be on their team with that. I would reject much of what I heard if it were that. Many people hear the word church, Christian, Jesus, Bible, eternity, hell, wrath. Forgiveness, all those kinds of terms lump up into one big thing back to the anti-women, anti-gay, uh, you know, politically charged, uh, bigoted, whatever. You can kind of fill in the blank. And that's what they just hear with all of that. So how do we winsomely and urgently go out and carry out this ministry of reconciliation that we looked at a couple of weeks ago? many churches don't want to get the gospel out anymore that seemed like something that went on in the 30s 40s and 50s and uh, college students were challenged to give up their entire life they were challenged uh, in centuries of old to pack up all their belongings in a coffin and move to africa because you're planning on dying on the mission field that's what that's saying and we've lost that here We've, we've lost this urgency to go out Here's what's beautiful about being a four-year-old church. If we aren't looking out, why are we even here? That's the message we've said from the beginning. If we're not looking to share, if we're not here, we have plenty of churches in this vicinity. You could walk to them. We don't need another inward-looking church. And I'm not commenting on local churches, by the way. But getting out Is what it's about. This is why I want you to walk our neighborhood with us one time this year. I plan on scheduling at least four to six times that we'll be walking our neighborhood. I don't care if you live 30 minutes away, come and walk this neighborhood with us as the church. If nothing else, to say, we need to get the message out, we need to be out in the community. Number four is this Are we getting the gospel right? Isn't that a great one? Are we getting the gospel right? If we don't get the gospel right, we might be preaching a false gospel. Now, Galatians 1.18, Paul basically damns to hell anyone whose message uh, or, or anyone who messes with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So to take the gospel and just to tweak it, to help God with the message, he says, if it's me or an angel or anyone, let him be accursed That's pretty serious. We better make sure we understand what the gospel is. There's some great books that kind of grab a lot of things in the Bible and simplify it for you. Come and talk to me afterwards. I'll give you a short bibliography that you can can check out. But you might be surprised at what you would think is the gospel. And you go, man, I'm having a hard time finding a verse that backs that up. You know why? That was your church tradition. That was the good old Puritan work ethic. That was American concept. That was Thomas Edison that said that. I mean, you'll, you'll be amazed. Sometimes people quote the Bible to me, and I, I just kind of try to lovingly, I play with them sometimes, but I go, I forget, what, um, what, what book is that in? You know, and sometimes they quote me a book that's not in the Bible. You know, I go, okay. So anyway... Um, we, we, we can often mix in American ideals into things and think that, we're, that we have the gospel right when, when, when really we might not have it. Remaining faithful to the word and catch this, changing when we don't line up will be a hallmark of this church. That if we get five years in and we embarrassingly find out, man, we, we've discovered from the scriptures we're doing the wrong thing. I mean, I'll commit to you as leaders of the church, we will humble ourselves and we'll say we've been going in the wrong direction with this. We're going to humble ourselves and repent and go the other direction. Uh, And because here here it is in the scriptures and I don't know how we missed it, but we did. And guess what? We don't we're we're not flying a perfectly straight path. We're we're trying to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And as we veer off the gospel, we're saying that's not the right way to go. So there in lies of the discrepancy in your church experience. Sometimes it's a decade-long wandering. Praise God that He sends people and situations and circumstances and sometimes exposes sin to shockingly get you back on course to the, to the standard. Are we getting the gospel right? Number five, are we adorning the gospel with good works? Are we adorning the gospel with good works? 1 Timothy 4.16 reminds us to watch our doctrine and our lives closely. Watch our doctrine and our lives closely. The fire station video kind of portrays us a little bit. Sometimes churches train and train and train and it's ready, aim, ready, aim, ready, aim, ready, aim, aim, ready. You know, and and there's never fire. There's that's going to mix the metaphor, but uh, (laughs) there's all this training going on and we never go engage in things. And so we can have our doctrine lined up and have our lives be a complete and utter mess. And people say, you know, I know people are excited about coming to this building and talking about a dusty book, but I don't get it. I don't see any fruit coming from that. Now, mind you, good works is not the gospel, but it can adorn it and make it more attractive. That's Titus chapter two, verse ten. Titus two, ten. Because, man, your good works ought to actually draw people in and say, man, what is it? What is it about that church? What is it about your, your little group of people that meet at your house on Thursday nights? What's it, what is it about the hope you seem to have? Why are you not freaking out? I freaked out when that happened in my life. What's the deal with you? Why are you helping me? If you don't have someone asking you these kinds of questions, it means it means you need to 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 ask God and, and trust God and obey God in, in seizing the opportunities that are all around you. You ought to periodically be having people go, Why are you doing this? Because it trips people out when you just pour yourself out on their behalf. Number six, are we praying for the work of the gospel? Are we praying for the work of the gospel, more workers, soft hearts, God's spirit to bring about new birth and new life within us, within our neighborhood, within our churches? Any discouraging trends must lead to prayer for the followers of a sovereign God. Anytime you're discouraged by trends and, and, and you say, gosh, it's been really hard to, to have this or that or the other thing. It ought to lead you to prayer. I had a conversation not long ago with someone from Taco Bell over here. And we got talking about different things and uh, eventually found out I was a pastor. And he said, um, he said, we're talking about your church. And we talked a little bit. And he goes, man, I, I, should, uh, I should maybe come check your, your church out. And I listened to this guy and asked him some questions and talked to him. And, and so I already knew he was leading a men's prayer time at his church. And he was super discouraged because his men's prayer time went from like, uh, you know, 20 people or something down to five. And I said, what's the size of your church? He says, the size of our church is about 40 people. I said, brother, five men out of 40 people in the church. I said, dude, you need to teach me a seminar on that. So I asked him, I said, "Okay, so so you come to my church. What happens to your men's prayer group? Where's it go? The other thing he does is once a month, now this is all, he could be blowing smoke, but he tells me once a month, he leads a group from his church downtown to help feed the homeless and just visit with the homeless. Look in their eyes and have a conversation with them. So what happens to that ministry if you leave your church because it's struggling, because it's been going downhill for five years, because you're discouraged by the, the pastor, because you're this, out of the other thing? What happens if you leave that and come to our church? Tell me what happens to those ministries. And he got it. He said, wow. I said, brother, go back and be encouraged and you go pour into your church. Praying for the work of the gospel, not for the name brand of Neighborhood Bible Church or Venture or Church of the Chimes or, all the, or, or any other little church within the church of San Jose. But praying for the work of the gospel to go out. If, it, if, if, if you're discouraged by things, it should lead to prayer, not simply better planning and programming and strategy meetings. You ought to have planning and programming and strategy meetings. No question about it. But prayer to be at the top of the list. Number seven, are we training up our children in the gospel? I'm going to take the words of Christ and uh, just... Give you a new lens to to look at this. What will a profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his children? It struck me heavy uh, um, at San Jose Christian College as I heard from a guy who was coming and supposed to be teaching us about youth ministry. And he had just lost his family. He had this phenomenal ministry. And his family basically walked out on him and said, you know, clearly you love... All these people more than us. you haven't tended to us well. Now, again, I don't know all the di- dynamics, but he was confessing this. And he was pointing to himself as the failure in that. <laughs> and you don't think my jaw was on my desk? Going, Lord, help me to shepherd my family well. But let's not let it be, and again, not too harsh on an organization, but just focused on the family. Like my family. Let's train up our family. Let's train up our children in such a way that the normative is that we would celebrate a 21-year-old who says, man, I want to buy a coffin and move to Africa. And we wouldn't try and talk him out of it. We would be with tears in our eyes. We'd say, wow. wow, God chose me. God chose me to allow my kid to go serve that way. Doesn't it tick you off that churches, good churches, are losing their kids out of high school? And that ought to just fire you up. It ought to cause you, here's what it caused me to do. God God caused me to get involved in youth ministry. I watched a ton of my friends chuck the Christian faith out of high school. You know why? There was no more fun parties. There was no more calendar of events. There was no more pouring in that it was all about me and that. And they just didn't know what to do. Right out of high school, you know what I did? I thought I was supposed to get involved in the church. So I got involved in the church. You know what I did? I went to adult choir. Because I kind of liked to sing and I thought the church needed help. (laughs) You, You know how long I lasted in adult choir? One Tuesday night. One Tuesday night, and I thought, Lord, dress me up in polyester and send me to Africa. I I cannot do this. This can't be it. Now, I didn't pray about it for six months. One week later, one week later, I wandered out to the back property at Venture Christian Church, and there's about 100 junior high students, and I was scared to death. And I started to just engage with them. And that began more than a decade of youth ministry. You know why I moved from adult choir to middle school? By the grace of God, some people poured into my life from my church. From that church where I was serving now in middle school. And I thought, man, if I could do that for one kid, that'd be pretty cool. And so, and so I just rolled up my sleeves and I just started doing it. Didn't know diddly squat about what I was doing. But I made myself available to go do that. Are we training up our children in the gospel? Mom, dad, aunt or uncle who's raising a kid, that starts with you. And that's a daily call and task. There's your mission field, right? Don't let it end there. But man, be pouring in to your kids. All right, let me invite the band up. If God is using the church to display his manifold wisdom to the whole universe, what does that mean for me? I hope you're asking that question. What does that mean for me? Here's a, here's a couple of applications to a few different groups of people. If you're disillusioned this morning, and I know some of you are thinking, man, you, 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 you talked about me with the church is lame camp. And I want to start with your church. Your church is lame. I'm going to write you an email this week, in fact. If that's you, here's what I want you to walk away with. Don't abandon the local church. I... I I don't care that you stay here. I I would love for you to stay here, but maybe you shouldn't stay here. Don't abandon the local church. To ignore the truth that God's plan is for the church and through the church is to sin against the Father who planned it, the Son whose death made it possible, and the Spirit who today seeks to work in our lives to accomplish what God has planned. You're sinning against God by abandoning the local church. And doubly so if you're encouraging others with potentially less discernment to do the same. To the new Christian, I would say in, in confident faith, be part of the family. In confident faith, be part of the family. understand this truth That you're a part of a family and it gives you great confidence. Look at verse 12 from our passage today. It says this, in whom, talking about Christ, we have boldness and boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Be a confident member of the body of Christ here. You don't need to be a Christian for five years. Five years, you might be so cooled off in status quo that that it takes you 10 more just to figure out your spiritual gift and to get plugged in. You know what new Christians don't know any better about? They say, look, I read the scriptures. I'm supposed to be involved. I'm supposed to be doing something. Put me to work, coach. Get me in the game. I wasn't given a uniform and a place on this team to sit around the bench or worse yet, sit in the stands and eat popcorn. Come on. I mean, what am I supposed to be doing? You know what that does? That convicts the person who's been in church for 20 years and has never asked that question. I mean, being around new Christians and new life, it says, man, how come I never do that? I never share my faith that that naively. And there's an amazing thing that can happen there. Finally, uh, no, two more to the anti-church, to those who just say, man, I I hate church and um, I'm turned off by church completely. Let me just leave you with this. Much of what is presented as Christianity simply is not of God, not only in America, but 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 worldwide. And we certainly have our share Look to a church whose fruit seems as if God is present. By the love of its members, by the love of its of its uh, and, and, and welcoming of outsiders and giving to outsiders. If there's Jesus like compassion to both the irreligious and the religious. And I would invite you if you're anti-church and really hungry for God, pray for insight into this. God will give you insight into this. Finally, to the faithful. To so the faithful, I would leave you with this glory into in the position that you have and the privilege, as Paul states at the start of our passage in verse seven, that it is to minister and partner with God in building up his church. You and I can't possibly build the church or be the church like we should. And that ought to actually comfort you and not discourage you because you say, thank God, or else I would fall into being a Pharisee. Building up kind of a a man made structure or a man made temple. Thank God I can't be the church or build the church like I ought. And then let it turn to worship and say, Praise God that in Christ we see the one who is the church, the manifestation of God, and is building his church through us. Let's pray. God, I pray that You would take these few words out of a whole collection of books that we call the Bible and Lord, that You would supernaturally allow it to penetrate mm-hmm. and permeate and challenge potentially false assumptions, hard-heartedness, stubbornness, apathy or maybe having the excitement in the wrong things and let that begin with me i pray that as a church and as church goers we would keep the end goal in mind when we're held to account we will not be praised for how hip we were how cutting edge we were how large we were what our budget was but we'll be looked at and be told, good and faithful servant. Well done. Lord, we hold that out as our goal, our end goal. Help us to think carefully through these questions and others that might arise. And keep us on track, Father. We need You. We praise You that You're building Your church and that You involve us. In Jesus' name. Amen.